Only you can break your word. And the day you do, you're nobody. And that's what made me at the age of 23 laying the floor of a Panamanian jail being tortured to death, where I bled for five years thereafter, because I was not gonna break my word. No, we're drug dealers. They just told you. I mean, just like that, we're drug dealers. We sell cocaine. You would think I'd be shocked, and I should have been. But immediately, my mindset was, well, you're an accountant. You know, that's what you were trained to count money. We are not defined by our past. There is hope. There is faith. We, we, there is a God that forgives. You can, you'll pay the consequences of our choices, but you can be different. So if you've seen the Netflix special, Cocaine Cowboys, my guest today is Dr. Jorge Valdez, who from 1977 to 1980 was the number one cocaine salesman in the world. 95% of the cocaine that was sold in Miami was him. But he's got an interesting background. Cuban immigrant hooks up with Pablo Escobar, who was going to school. He was going to be somebody. He had a big GPA, went to University of Miami. Then he starts selling drugs, makes a million to three million a year. In 1990, $60 million. He lost confidence to get away from the life. Then that leads to later on him becoming a doctor, PhD. Very, very interesting story with that being said. said uh, Dr. Valdez, thank you so much for being a guest. Thanks, Patrick. It's my pleasure. And I got to compliment you on your suit, man. Thank you look you. amazing. Thank you look you. very you do good. Too. Well, I've I seen you. Yeah. I've been following you for a while, so I saw your suits and I just want to dress appropriately. Well, I know you, you took it to a different level. I mean, I'm, I'm here. <laughs> my, my assistant, Caroline, said there's a man, Jorge Valdez, who looks very sharp in the office today. I said, well, that was, that's what I was expecting. Anyways, okay, so before we go through this stuff, there's a lot of different things I want to know, but for the audience that doesn't know your story, why don't we start from the beginning and then we'll go into some questions. So here's the interesting thing. Uh, I came from Cuba at the age of 10. My parents were very well off, and, uh, but I had a mother who was very religious. She wanted us to have nothing to do with communism. And my father was a very wealthy man, 40 years old. He did not think that Fidel was going to impact the rich. You know, that's how they thought. He didn't think he was going to impact the rich? Right. He didn't think that it was yeah. basically because, you know, Fidel's first agenda was, I'm going to go out to the Americans that have taken all this stuff from the United States. Yep. I mean, from Cuba. I never paid for it. Yeah. So anyway, so we, my mother said, no, we're leaving. I'm taking my kids out of the United States. I mean, out of Cuba. And it was very strange because, you know, I didn't know any of this was going on. Right. I'm just a little kid. I'm playing baseball in the streets. That was the, my passion. And, uh, but that date, uh, she wakes us up at five o'clock in the morning, well, four o'clock in the morning, and she's like, get dressed, we're leaving. What and year I, is this? 1966, okay. October 11th. And Patrick, I'm there like, we are what? <laughs> he said, just put on underwear, pant, socks, shoes, shirt, and belt. And that was strange, because, you know, we're going on a lot of family trips, and we yeah. pack stuff, and she's like, no, just what you got on. So... You know, we, back in that generation where you really don't question your parents <laughs> at all. So we headed out to the airport, and I was in a trance. And then, of course, at the airport was the most traumatic. I said that my life shifted in, like, three cataclysmic moments. The first one was that day, because as we're about to our name be called, my mother gets called, and she finds out they're not going to let her leave. And they said they made a mistake. But her father was a very, very big figure in Cuba years back. And she was very vocal about, you know, her anti-communism stand. So she was or he, uh, he was? No, she was. My mother. She was also right. vocal. When you say vocal, what does that mean? In, in other sense that 
for example, one of the things that Fidel did is, let's say your son, all of a sudden, when he gets to be 12, and you're living here in Boca Raton, he's going to take your kids from your house, and he's going to send them to California. And he's going to send some kids from Texas to your house. Why? Because as we're going to school, they have what they call the pioneers. And the pioneers, like the Boy Scouts, but it was their way of indoctrinating the youth, right, into the communist ideal. So if I go home and I tell my mom, like I would, what I learned in school, right? There's no God. That's just a uh, poor excuse for the poor. And my mother gives me hell. Well, it stays there. But if I come home and I'm living at your house and your wife tells me that, oh, that's a bunch of BS, and I go back to school and tell the teacher, your wife will go to jail. Got it. What a way. So, so he, he broke was, up the family. So he was breeding snitches and how to break up families. Oh, I mean, the first thing he did, well, as far as snitches was, every block had a snitch. Every block had what they called a committee, the committee, that reported everything that went on. Just somebody sat on her chair and rocked and, and took notes of cars coming in, whatever was going on. So that's what he did. And my mother said, well, before my children turn 12, I'm taking him out mm-hmm. of here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my mom was born with a silver spoon in her mouth. Her dad was, you know, her dad at, at the age of 16 went to the independence to fight with Maceo against Spain and came back a general and highly decorated to this point. Nice. The uh, military base where he's from, Fidel Castro, still named it after him. That's how much of a big figure he was, like one of our founding fathers here. So uh, my mother, of course, she would curse out the committee. She didn't give a damn about anyone. She was, I said my mother was five foot, man. If she had been five four, she'd be a terrorist. <laughs> But, uh, Strong personality. Yeah, oh, unbelievable. And uh, so she's like, we're leaving. Well, she doesn't get to go. And my father said, well, if you're not leaving, I'm not going to leave. So my father comes to me. I'm 10. My brother's 9. My sister's 5. My mother comes, grabs my hand, and says, George, you take your brother and sister to Miami. I'll see you one day. And that, to me, like my whole world rocked. Because my father like, I'm not coming. He eventually, he did get on the airplane as we were boarding. And uh, so we went from living in a house that was one square block, each kid had a car, you know, very well to do, to 11 of us living in a one-bedroom apartment in Miami, where we had to write down what time we were going to piss because everyone had to go to school or work. So all of a sudden, when I got to Miami, was my first cataclysmic moment. All this stuff about God that my mother's been telling me, Mom, you know what? What they were teaching me in school was right. There ain't no God. This is all BS. If we're coming from Cuba to be with God, and this is God's joke, you know? And uh, so I grew up till many years later, a diehard atheist. And, uh, and then the next day was when this drive in me awoke. I, I encountered my American dream. Mm-hmm. What was that? My cousin, who had been there about a year, year and a half earlier, comes to visit us, and he has a candy apple red, white interior, GTO. Man, Patrick, it was like, this is it. The day I get that, I'm gonna be somebody in America. Yeah. But you know, my father was a man of unbelievable principles. You know, my father, uh, we had no food to eat. You know, we'd get two raw eggs and this powdered milk that they give us that, till today I take milk and I wanna vomit. And, and that's all we would have till dinner time. And dinner time was rice and beans. He's making 85 cents an hour, minimum wage, doesn't speak English, 40 years old, three little kids, rent $80. I mean, we're literally going through hell. Well, I found out that my friend 
has lunch at school. And man, I, to me, it was a big discovery. I couldn't wait to get home and say, hey, dad, dad, I found out my buddy, he has lunch. He has a sandwich. To me, a sandwich is like now having a three-pound lobster. And he's like, you know, you know the old uh, generation, they didn't speak much, you know, kids were meant to be seen, not to yep, be heard. Yep. So he just nods his head, and he's like, uh, I said, he tells me he gets food stamps. I said, Dad, do you know about food stamps? And he's like, nods his head. I said, well, why don't we get food stamps, Dad? He's like, some because that's for poor people. And I looked at him, Patrick, and he was like, holy <laughs> crap. We're not even poor yet? <laughs> you mean we still got to climb our way out of wherever that's called to get to poverty? I said, Dad, we're not poor? He pointed a finger at my chest said, no, son, we don't have any money. People that take money from the government are poor and going to stay poor. You figure out how to get up early and help wow. feed your family. I was 10 years old. I weighed probably 90 pounds. And at 5.30 in the morning, I've been getting up ever since that day, and I'm 65 today, to help feed my family, to to uh, deliver newspaper. I was so skinny, I couldn't even ride my bike. The papers would flip me over. I had to walk until I got rid of enough newspapers, and uh, we did that. But tremendous principle. You know, my father was, there was one thing that he taught me that it still resonates with me today at 65, and, I, and I've been, and, you know, told to my children over and over again. And to me and my brother used to look at each other and goes, man, there goes a damn broken record. He would come up to us, I don't know what, and say, son, in life, you have no control whether you're dead or alive. No control whether you're sick or healthy. No control whether you're rich or poor. And I'm like, no shit. <laughs> I can figure that one out. Yeah. He said, the only thing you have absolute control, son, is your word. Only word, you, word your or word. Word. Only you can break your word. And the day you do, you're nobody. And that's what made me, at the age of 23, laying the floor of a Panamanian jail, being tortured to death, where I bled for five years thereafter, because I was not going to break my word. And, uh, but I had clear lines, you know. Uh, I didn't do, by the time I joined the, that group that went on to become the Medellin cartel, because here's the interesting, there was no Medellin cartel, okay? So I've seen a lot of the interviews. Uh, Jorge Shaw finally came out and said the same thing. There was a group of families that controlled the drug trade in Colombia. And that group, the Americans said, hey, if we bundle them up and call it the Medellin cartel, we have one enemy. And who seems to be the head? Pablo. But the truth of the matter is, neither Pablo was the wealthiest, neither Pablo was the richest. There were people so much more powerful and wealthier that no one's ever known their name. Come on. And see, and here's what's interesting about. When they came to me about Cocaine Cowboy, Net, yeah. uh, the producers, I turned them down three times. Three times, for numerous reasons, but mainly two, two main reasons that I always had. And that is that some mother sits there and watches this show and says, hey, it's glamorous, it was exciting, mm -hmm. but because of you guys, I buried a child. Or worse yet, some kid drops out of school and says, I'm gonna become like Silent Willie and become a drug dealer and become rich. It ain't gonna happen. It's never gonna happen. So I was always hesitant of that until the last time when I told him, you tell the bad with the good. And I'll do it, because the interesting thing is, no one, see, every story that you hear, narcos, all of them, what do they start with? Pablo Escobar. Mm -hmm. Well, Patrick, that's a whole big world of enormous drug trafficking before Pablo Escobar even surfaced out of poverty. 
So the, the number you hear about is the fact that Pablo at his peak was worth 20 billion. I don't think so, by no means. By no means. By no means. So who would you say was bigger than Pablo? Well, there was numerous ones. There was a guy named, that we nicknamed Negro, who Pablo killed, and uh, he was much, much wealthier than him. Uh, Gacha was much wealthier than Pablo. The thing with Pablo was, he was not the wealthiest or the most powerful. He was the most ruthless. Mm. If Pablo killed you, he would kill all your males in your family. And he had no respect for human life. No Zero. respect for human life. Zero respect. Human life meant nothing to him. But, and that's what ruined the, the business. And because the group that I got enlisted to, it was only four and me, five. It was five of us that controlled 95% of all the cocaine that came to the U.S. That group was very different than all this group. See, I tell this to people, real simple. I'm going to give you the script for Pablo Escobar, for Gacha, Sal, Willie, uh, Chapo. The same script. Poor kid, got out of school, joins a life of crime, becomes powerful, lives a lavish lifestyle, kills people, goes to jail or die. That's the same script. Put whatever name you want on it. Put the same name. They're all the same identical script. That's not my story. And that's not the story that I ever wanted to tell. See, yeah, I was poor because I came to the United States and we lost everything. But I was the youngest employee in the Federal Reserve Bank at the age of 17. You know, I was an honor student. I went to school full-time, and, and I worked at the Federal Reserve Bank full-time. I went to school at the University of Miami full-time on scholarship. And I had, i never done drugs, didn't drink all the alcohol by the age of 20 that I drank, fit in a teacup that yeah, size. Till today. No, I, I love my wine today. Okay. So, Got you know, it. I do. She, yeah, she's yeah. validating that. Exactly. She's yeah. validating that. But... You know, I, I can tell you what I did for four years, every day of my life. I got up at 5.30 in the morning. I was at the bank at 6.30. I worked till 3.30. I got home at 4. My mother had dinner. I leave the house at 4.30, 4.45. I had my first class, you know, Miami, 5.30. I leave at 10.30. I go home and I study till 2.30. I did that every day four for years. four years. You, so your mom eventually came to Miami. Yeah, Miami, my mom eventually joined us about uh, seven months later. Seven months yeah. later. So you were 11 years old when she came to yeah. Miami. Okay. I, as a matter of fact, right before I turned 11 years old, Got I it. was still 10. So, so, so you're now, uh, you're going to school, you're an honor student, you're very uh, uh, systematic, you have discipline, your mom and dad have taught you strong values, mindset of you're not poor, mindset of standing up for yourself, don't be uh, weak, you're strong, respectful, all of these things your parents have taught you. So your trajectory at this point is what? Who is... Jorge Valdez gonna end up being at this point? I had a clear vision. I would, I would graduate from Miami at 20. I take a couple of years to work, save enough money. I go to law school at 22, 23. I graduate from law school at 25 and I'm gonna be a millionaire at 30 because if I'm not a millionaire, I'm a nobody. That's how you're seeing and it. And that was my whole world. And nothing would deviate from that. I had a little girlfriend that I would see very, very seldom. And if we ever went, ever, we hardly even went to party, went to a party and I smelled pot. Now, remember, this is the 70s, which is like, probably like alcohol now. Flowers, yeah. I, I, I oh, Nettie, I got to leave. <laughs> I'm a federal employee. <laughs> I can't, I, you know, are you crazy? Got it, yeah. I got this few, I didn't have a traffic ticket. I didn't have anything in my life. And, uh, and that was the whole thing. And, uh, and then 
So I'm going to be a lawyer by 30, millionaire, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a lawyer by That's 25, like, millionaire by 30 is what I'm going to be doing. Because if I'm not that, yeah. I'm nobody. Okay, so your identity, sink or swim. That's it. I'm not playing small. I'm going to go do something big. And this is a million, 30 years old in what, 70s? Like uh, uh, early, early 80s? 76. No. 76, okay. Yeah. So, so, okay, so now what happens where you get introduced to this life? So I, uh, at 76, my accounting professor, uh, he had left from uh, Michigan. He was a partner at Price Waterhouse, came to Miami, and this speaks Spanish. So he's like, hey, George, if you come work for me and do my Spanish clients, I'll give you secretary, office, everything to start your business. And to me, that was like heaven opening up because I wanted to be on my own. I mean, I thought I had a heck of a future at the Federal Reserve Bank. Me and the vice president of the Federal Reserve Bank office were the only two that they paid tuition to go to the University of Miami. Everybody else had to go to the state college. So when he told me that, my mother, my father, very conservative, you're crazy, stay with the bank, you have a hell of a future. My mother, you'll never be nobody working for somebody. Mm. So, you know, my mother was everything in our house, like most uh, Hispanic mothers. And, uh, and I resigned and I went to work for him. And the first client that he gave me was a little grocery store in Miami, like a little strip uh, joint, not a, not a strip club. Strip <laughs> you know, joint, the strip, slightly yeah. different, no yeah, poles exactly. and strip, a little yeah. different. Makes you sense. know like those shopping centers in Miami, right? Totally get it. I mean like, I don't know, 10 feet wide, yep. 15 feet wide, 40 feet uh, deep. And uh, it was a little grocery store. And I go there Monday, I'm supposed to go every Monday in the morning, couple hours, and pay me $1,000. Right there I'm gonna be rich, $1,000. I mean I'm making, minimum wage is 85, 95, I'm making 350 working for the bank. I'm a big shot, you know? $1,000 for three hours? Oh, man. So I go there, and they have a little office in the back, and I go, and I see this paper sack. And he had like a hundred and some odd thousand dollars. And I'm like, wow. I look around, no way this grocery store produced that. I thought, well, maybe they haven't made deposits in a year. I don't know. No clue. Zero clue what's going on. Do my accounting, go to the bank, deposit the $100,000, boom, show up next week, 75000 And I'm like, no, there's got to be something wrong. So the only thing I could think of, there's a shelf, and i never forget it had a, a can of Campbell's soup. And it was dusty. <laughs> it has been sitting there for a long time. So I'm going to go, and I'm going to put a V on top of that can. I want to see if this can sells, because I'm coming back next week, and... Now I'm like getting a little suspicious. What a thing to do. But think about this now. Suspicious that something's going on. The least of them all, if they gave me 100 choices, <laughs> I would have chose cocaine as the 100th of the choices. Got it. Of what was going on. Remember now. How were they as people? Just regular people? And when yeah, you just regular. Yeah. Regular Colombian. Uh, pretty wild, you know. Uh, I remember one time he got mad at the wife. So the wife gets out and gets a big old piece of ham and throws it at him. At the store, and then he takes out his gun, shoots the ham, and puts it back in the counter. I'm like, wow, these people are a little different than I am. <laughs> so you're, you're 20, 21 at this time. No, I'm 20. Okay, got it. I'm 20. It's 1976. Okay. I just left the bank. And uh, so do my accounting, go back, and the next week when I come, there's another hundred thousand. I'm like, no, I need explanation. And I never forget. I called him in there and said, oh, bro, let me give you a little accounting Lesson. You see that can of Campbell's soup that's still there because I put a V on it and, and, and it hasn't gotten nowhere, it still has the V? Well, if that can is a dollar and you sell it tomorrow for three dollars, 
you have generated $3 worth of income and $2 worth of profit. So here's the problem. I've deposited close to $300,000, and yet the receipts for all you bought don't add up to $1,500. <laughs> what gives? You think that they would, like, come up with some... They looked at me, and they're like, oh, yeah, this is nothing. No, we're drug dealers. They just told you. I mean, just like that, we're drug dealers. We sell cocaine. Now, let me go back. At least they're honest about it. Yeah. In the 70s, in the 70s, cocaine does not have the stigma that cocaine has and should have today, right? In the 70s, it was for the rich and famous, the Hollywood celebrities. I mean, you could buy a gorgeous house in Miami, four bedroom for 40 grand, and a kilo of cocaine was 60 to 70. So who had this, right? So they're like, yeah, we're drug dealers. And by the way, we've been meaning to ask you, we know you work for the government. Uh, do you know how to open foreign bank accounts? And I'm like, yeah, I happen to know. And they're like, how much? And I just threw a number for the heck of just getting, stop this conversation, let's go on, move over. And uh, I said $10,000, and it was 1500 bucks about the cost. And they're like, uh, can you open three? Now, immediately, I added up three. I'm going to make about eight grand profit. You know, three of them, man, 24000 three bucks an hour at the bank. Think about it, I'm making about $1,000 a month. You know, like, this is 25 years worth of labor. And they're like, uh, I'm like, sure. And I did. And I began to open four mega. And so this is what's really interesting. I tell people I had drawn a line that I wouldn't cross for nothing. But all of a sudden, the fact that here is these people that couldn't even hardly read and write, and they're making ungodly amounts of money. And here I am, busting my ass, working honestly, going to school, no sleep, and I'm barely getting by. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's like, so we come up with excuses, right? I'm only going to do it one time. Okay, I'll open this company, and that, that gives me the money to go to law school. We, we're great at justifying it, right? I tell people, listen, nobody drinks a gallon of vodka the first time. He's going to die. <laughs> you know, no one shoots an ounce of heroin. You start with a little, and then you come up with a good excuse because that's how we are. We're wired so to yep. justify yep. all of our actions. Yep. And immediately, the first way I just, when he told me there were uh, cocaine dealers, you would think I'd be shocked, and I should have been. But immediately, my mindset was, well, you're an accountant. You know, that's what you were trained to count money. There's no money laundering laws. You're doing nothing wrong. Just a customer. Just immediately. Just yeah. another customer. What they do, that's their problem. They go to jail, that's their problem. Yeah. I'm, hey, I'm providing a service that I paid all those years yeah. to work for. Yeah. And, uh, and it did. And I started to open foreign bank accounts, and I started what was considered by the government the original web of the most sophisticated money laundering, because immediately I started to become friends with ministers of finance in countries all over the world. I'm, tw I'm barely, I'm not even 21 yet. I have braces. I look like a nerd. If you look up nerd in the dictionary, bang, there was my picture. That's how I looked. I mean, it's like, it was like, <laughs> I look back. I mean, there's a picture. I have a picture when I started with the cartel with a, a, a yellow jersey from my high school. And uh, I'm like, so I start making this money for them. And shortly thereafter, and this thing escalates. So this is like towards the end of 1976, 77 coming on, and, and it begins to escalate really, really fast. So 
within months, within a couple months, they come and they tell me, we want you to meet our boss. He has a business proposition for you. And I'm like, okay. So I meet him, and this is the guy that was the original head of what would become the Medellin Cartel. This is the guy from who a lot of all these people mm. came from. And, uh, and he's like, hey, we, uh, we're interested in starting a banana import business. And uh, we want to buy a ship, and we want to start bringing bananas, and we want to, you know, I mean, and here's the interesting thing. He and his partners, they were business people. They had tons of business. They wore a suit. They talked like you and I talk. This is not what you would think that you see Pablo and all his sicarios, that type of No, this was, I mean, he owned the largest construction company in Colombia. He owned the largest uh, coal mine, the largest emerald mine, airlines. Mm. So I'm thinking that he's proposing a legitimate business. I mean, he's like, well, we want you to be the president. And I'm like, sure. I said, look, I want equal partnership or and $7,000 a month. Well, $7,000 was like a fortune. They look at me and they're like, no problem. I'm like, shoot, I should have asked for more. <laughs> and we flew out to California and we bought a, a big old landing ship, you know? And, uh, and, and those were those big cargo ships where they would go up to the shore, the military, mm -hmm. drop a hatch, and they offload equipment and stuff like that. Little did I ever imagine what the real intention was with the banana company. And it shows how it wasn't bananas. So we buy this ship, and I'm in California, and we got to refurbish it to uh, do refrigerated. And uh, while I'm out there, the guy that's doing the refrigeration for me starts harassing me. It's like, hey, man, I know that's a cocaine boat. And I'm like, dude, you're wrong. I said, look, you think I'm stupid enough that if this is going to do something illegal, I would have my name on it? I was that stupid because I had no idea. And he like, yeah, no speculation. Nothing. You're not zero. Okay. Because they didn't talk like you would think the stigma to drug These were business people. We talked about feasibility study. We did feasibility study. We did financial statements. We did all this stuff that you would expect. I mean, try to tell us any one of those goons today. Let's do a feasibility study. They'll look at you like, what the hell is that? Yeah. You know, how much money? Here's a bunch of cash. So, anyway, uh, so I come back to Miami, and I tell the guy that started me with the partners, right? The guy that was, this guy that was always hanging at the grocery store, which was the boss of the two owners of the grocery store. And uh, I said, hey, you won't believe this, man. These people keep thinking that, that this boat is for cocaine. And I keep telling him no. And he's like, man, you know, you can make a lot of money if you find a good buyer out there. And I'm like, dude, I don't want nothing to do it. I said, be stupid if you guys to get me involved in that when I'm handling all your money. Now, I'm depositing half a million dollars a month, 1976. It's a lot of cash. And uh, kept at it, till one day I bit. He's like, hey, take three kilos out there. You don't have to do nothing. We'll send it out there, send it to your guys and see what happened. Well, one thing led to the other, and this is where I tell my second cataclysmic moment. I go to a party. now. My circle of influence has changed, right? No longer my other deadbeat buddies. You know, I tell my son, my generation, people say, oh, wow, incredible. You worked full-time and went to school full-time. So did all my friends. That was our generation. You know, we all wanted to get ahead. We all had families, you know, because back then you married early, and we all had responsibilities. So I go to a party now. Now those are not my friends anymore, right? Now I start in the, in the circle of their friends, the rich, 
the famous, the musicians, the arching promoters, big, big names back in the 70s. And I go to a party, and I see a, fe- a, a judge strung out on cocaine. A judge? A judge that gave people hundreds of years for cocaine offense. And I looked at him, and I'm like, man, there's no God, and there's just like no morals in this country. Wow. Because this group that started what would become the main cartel, nobody did drugs. They're like, hey, this is for the idiots to make us rich. So I'm like, it leads to another, and they're like, we want you to handle all operations in the United States. When I said no, when I said yes, I would, right? Uh, but here's the deal. I said, I got to be equal partners, and you got to put up my part, because I ain't got no money. Mm-hmm. Needless to say, I said that sort of like, just leave me alone, you know, because here's this powerful people having a 21-year-old kid telling them he wants to be equal partner, and they got to finance him. And he has no idea. I don't even know what cocaine looks like. Never seen it in my life. And, uh, and they're like, let's think about it. I'm like, good. So I'm headed back the next morning back to California. And when the chauffeur comes to pick me up, he says, uh, Don Manuel wants to see you. So I'm like, okay, man, we forgot to talk something about the world. Because we would talk literally like you would with anybody that mm-hmm. worked for you in another city running some operation. And, uh, and there was his other partners. And, uh, man, and he was stoic looking. I mean, it's like, and I'm like, oh, man, we didn't forget to talk. This is, I'm dead. <laughs> I was stupid. What the hell? You know, I insulted the hell out of these people, and, and they're going to let me know really quick what they think about it. So they look at me, and like, we discussed it, and, uh, and we agree. We'll let you handle all our operations in the U.S. Now, what the hell does that mean? I don't know what cocaine looks like. How did I bring it in? Who am I going to sell it to? Well, I knew those guys in California. What am I going to do with the money? How am I going to get it to California? How am I going to get the money to back to Colombia? All of that for a kid that never broke the law in his life. Now I'm no more just handling money as an accountant that I'm trained to be. I'm going to handle this big, large operation. And think about it. If you saw Cocaine Cowboy in Netflix, you see there was a big operation in Miami called Operation Video Canary. Mm -hmm. Operation Video Canary, they arrested every drug dealer that there was in Miami, right? They were all selling Graham Townsend, like Sam Woolley, who literally, like the producer said, I handed him, or the prosecutor said, I handed him the keys to the kingdom. They were selling grams at a disco for years. My name never came up, and I was bringing in 800 kilos for two years. 800 kilos? A month. I was making a million to $3 million a month. We were doing anywhere between 50 and $80 million a month, almost a billion a year. In 1977, 78, money. It's a lot of, a lot of money back then. What is life like at that time? Well, needless to say, you know, it's like, like the young athletes that signed the big contract, they, they broke all their lives. I was the same, no different, right? But I invested a lot. But I bought jets, mansions, Rolls Royces. Uh, I had every known car you can imagine. And I dated some of the most beautiful women in America. And I said, and, I, and I, I wrote a blog that I said, I'm 22 years old. I make a million dollars a month. I have mansions, jets, helicopters, million dollar car, and I want to die. And I want to die. And see, and that's the message that I wanted to get across to a lot of people. And I think they did a really good job in Cocaine Cowboys because the thing about it is, see, Patrick, I thought that once I reached my American dream, 
which is not what the American dream is. Mm -hmm. The American dream is the World War II generation that worked their butts off to have a job in a decent retirement, one house. Uh, they had marriage problems, but divorce was not an option. You know, they hated the war like all of us. Serving was an honor. They'd rather be an hour early than a minute late. That's the American dream. Our American dream is just a false. It's the fact that you, you have this hunger within you and society is quick to tell you, listen, when you do this, you're gonna be happy. When you date this gorgeous model, look at it on TV. Well, listen, I woke up next to them. They don't look the same in the magazine as they do when they wake up out of bed. You're supposed to be happy. Everybody's telling you you're God. You know, you did a video that I liked a lot when you talk about how people are constantly wanting people to like them, you know? And it's interesting that we live in a world that that video you didn't get as many views as some of the other <laughs> mafia videos when that video had unbelievable message. Yeah. To me, it did. Because it's so true, right? We're constantly wanting people to praise us. We want, why? Because we're miserable. And we need affirmation. See, and instead of people saying to me, listen, George, you're the scum of the earth. No, it, it didn't matter what I did. You're, you're so, you know, you're the best to hang out with. You're this, you're that. So at that time, when you're making a million to three million a, a month, and you guys are doing a bill a year, uh, what does your mom and dad think you're doing? So see, that's the thing. My mom did not have no idea what I was doing. Did they ever come to your mansion? They did thought, they get on the well, jets? No, they, oh yeah. But they thought that I was a legitimate businessman because we had, we had cattle farms. We had business that they could see. We had construction company. I, I took my father to Columbia a couple of times to see uh, the house that I bought, which was a big old development that we have built. So they saw all that. And this is, the, this is where the problem comes with Sal and Willie. So my dad is best friends with them, with his father, forever, since Cuba. Uh, every day after dinner, till they all died, they would visit each other's house for coffee. Mm -hmm. To me, they were like my parents, loved them to death. Well, so Sal, uh, I lost uh, track with Sal because he, they dropped out of high school. I kept on going to college. And every time my dad went to his parents' house, he was like, hey, tell George to give me a chance. Tell George to give me Because of course my dad, being a typical Hispanic, he's bragging about his son, how his son is doing so well, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how his son is driving a road, you know, all of this stuff, not knowing really what his son was doing. So I was afraid that we were gonna tell my dad when I give him a meeting, you know? I was afraid that, hey, you know, let me talk to him because sooner or later he's gonna spill it. And then, you know, my parents, it would destroy my parents, which eventually it did. And it's the greatest regret of the many regrets that I have. You know, people tell, tell me, it's like, don't you miss that life? Well, you have a jet? I don't, I sure as hell miss mine. Of course you miss it. You miss the thing, I don't miss, it. tell me, hey, do you miss having a 747? No, I never had one, so I don't miss. You miss the thing that you had. But the thing is that none of that gave me the joy that I have today, because today my joy is not in that thing. My joy is in me and who I am and who created me. So. In that, in that time when you're doing the, by the way, very uh, uh, insightful and, and I love the fact that you're, you're sharing that with the audience because sometimes uh, messages can come across as being glorified and young people look up to and say, I'd love to have that kind of accolades, the cars, all this stuff and I don't care if I need to live the fast life. But, but going back to it, during that time while you're doing business with all these different types of folks, who are you negotiating with? Who are you dealing with? 
political people, celebrities, billionaires, uh, you know, uh, other, are you doing dealings with Pablo? Are you doing dealings, who are you, who are you dealing with at that time? Pablo's not even in the picture yet. Okay. Pablo didn't even surface until 1980-81. I'm in jail when he surfaces. Uh, so I'm dealing with, literally, we pay for the presidential campaign of the president of Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. A million dollars. I'm dealing with uh, Somoza in Nicaragua. Uh, we're spending half a million to a million dollars a month in bribery right here in the U.S. Two things we couldn't bribe. An appellate judge, DEA, or FBI agent. You couldn't Could bribe. Not. Why not? Because they just wouldn't take it. And it wasn't much that we would ask it. Now, I'm not saying that there's not some that will sure. take it. But I'm telling you as a whole. And it's not like I'm going to go to DEA agent. And so how does bribery work? Corruption work. Real simple. Everybody knows somebody, right? And, and your circle becomes very, very big. So if I know you know that federal judge, right, like one that we tried to get to, who is an appellate judge, to rule on my behalf when I had all the rights to win. I had the best lawyers in the world. I had a million dollars with the lawyers. So I say, hey, all I want is a fair verdict. I'll pay a million bucks. So it's not like a stranger coming to Patrick, the yeah. federal judge. It's... The guy that Patrick hangs out with all the time. So everybody has somebody. So at the state level, politicians, politicians, it didn't matter who it was. We had no need to buy, to buy the president of the United States back then. But I guarantee you, if we needed to, we could have. Because think about a million dollars a month in 1977-78. You're talking about what, eight, nine, ten million dollars mm -hmm. now? Yeah. You know? Uh, Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Sure, sure. And when you, you can get to people, and basically all we needed from people, what was gold for us, was information. That's what was important. We were not looking at, hey, he's in jail, get him out. Well, that's, that was easy. You know, that, at that time, you can do that very, very cheap. Are you, are you also living the uh, life where you're hurting people? You're, are you guys having to collect? Are you also living the life where you have to harm is there, you know, uh, murders taking place or no? That wasn't your world. Not at all. <clears throat> I'll give you two examples. One example where it was a big test for me. My godfather, the guy that started this group, where Pablo and all of them come from, he's 93 years old today. Still around. Still around. Good for him. Never, never had a bodyguard. Even during the worst killings in Colombia. And he was on the list to be extradited twice, right? Never had a bodyguard. One time, I asked permission to knock somebody off. And I'm not a killer. I, you know, I had grew up, I was a nerd. You know, I was not, I didn't grow up on the streets mm -hmm. as a street kid. But you wake up every day and they tell you, hey, uh, Patrick says you're going to put a contract on your life. And Patrick's going to put a contract on your life. And I know that I can wipe out Patrick in two seconds. Right? So I asked him, I said, Manuel, here's the deal. This guy keeps threatening me. And he's out there asking people, telling people he's going to kill me. And at any given moment, any human being can be killed, right? I want to get rid of him. And this was his response. No. He says, a million dollars we bring back and make any day of the week a life we can't bring back. I'm like, but the life you won't get to bring back is mine. And he's like, you do what is right before God and you'll be okay. And this is one of the founding members of the cartel, yeah. the Medellin and cartel. And this is the guy that said to me, if you have to carry a gun to deal with someone, you have no business dealing with that person. So here was one test he put me at the beginning, at the very beginning. He tells me one day, he says, 
hey, there's this guy, Oscar, that owes me $90,000. I want you to go collect it. So, you know, I get a couple guys. We're going to go collect the $90,000. I never, never asked me that. We never had to do that. Yeah. Everybody we dealt with, we've known for ages. You know, we're doing all this. We're doing millions of dollars on a handshake. So I go see the guy. He opens the door and ushers me in. Doesn't I, I call him up. Hey, I need to see you. He says, come to my house. That was a little weird. So I go to his house and he says, look. I got ripped off, and look, it takes me to the refrigerator. His wife was about to give birth, had nothing in the refrigerator, no milk, nothing. He says, the, just tell Manuel that the minute I, my wife gives birth and we find an apartment, I'll give you the deed to the house. I got ripped off, but I want to pay my debt. So I looked at the guy, and I told the guy that went with me, go to the car and bring me, you know, I call Unfajo, which was $10,000. So he comes back, and I give it to him. I said, listen, man, forget about the debt. The day you can pay us, pay us. But in the meantime, here, just go buy stuff for your baby and your wife and get yourself settled and you'll never hear from us again. I called my godfather and he's like, did you collect? I said, well, I got bad news for you. I said, not only did I not collect, but you owe me 10000 <laughs> And he's like, so I told him the story. This was his words. That's exactly what I wanted to see you do. Total different people than the scum that came. After and it's very very sad because I say I say to people, what's one of the reasons why Pablo Escobar got killed? Well, real simple, because of pride and ego. I mean, do you think that he needs to kill this one guy, a negro who's a really decent guy, because the guy at a Christmas party said, "Hey, Pablo's got all the fame, but I got all the money," and Pablo kills him. He hasn't uh, assassinated the guy; doesn't die, and then he's at the clinic, and this guy's got a lot of power. And Pablo walks in with all his goons and kills him himself in the clinic. So very different from the world. But all of this is beginning to surface while I go to prison. Mm -hmm. See, in 1978, so when I gave Sal and Willie a chance, and what it was, basically what it was is <clears throat> when I meet with them to tell them, listen, stop talking to my father. And I'm like, he's like, come on, man, give me a chance. I said, well, okay, how much you want to buy? How much do you have to buy? And he's like, uh, $20,000. And I start laughing. I want to pee in my pants. $20,000, dude. <laughs> Think I sell grams? <laughs> $60,000 is a kilo, man. And nobody's, and nobody's selling one kilo. So I'm like, all right, let me see if I can ever give you a chance. I'll try to work out, but right now we're committed. And, and even the cartel, even this group, right, they didn't want us to sell much in Miami because they felt that, listen, don't poop where you eat. Our market is California, New York. That's where all the fame and all the glory and all the celebrities, you know, that were our customers. Just think about any famous singer in, the 19, in 1975, 76, 77, 78, they bought from us. So I said, let me give you a chance. Well, two months later, I had just bought a brand new, uh, I think it was at that time, it was a 450 SL Mercedes convertible in Germany. I was going to pick it up. And in every load, one of the things that we did, see, if I tell you, like, one of the things that I, I wrote is called the Narcomaster Journal. And basically, the way I built that empire is no different than, than the principle I used to get my PhD, which is the hardest academic achievement in America, and no different than building a multi-million dollar national international company as a twice-convicted drug dealer. Same thing. 
Well, one of them to me was this win-win. I felt that if I approached the world with a win-win, then nobody would be my enemy. So, for example, and this took on later on, became more important. Uh, so I'm bringing in 800 kilos. You're Pablo, you're Gacha, you're Frank, Kike, whoever, and you say, because it's a small world, right? Mm -hmm, in in mm -hmm. Spanish Medellin. Yeah. Hey, man, George and Manuel, they're, they're bringing loads left and right. You know what's going to happen? Mm -hmm. Sooner or later, they're going to knock me off or tell on me. Like, I'll just review your show for the first time in history. As Pablo Escobar was doing with the DEA for years. On people. Under a presumed name. So, Wait, if I tell meaning, you... Meaning Pablo was cooperating the entire time with the DEA. Yeah, but you know, he wasn't doing it to cooperate because he believed in law enforcement. He was like, hey, what's the easiest way for me to get rid of Pat? I just found out that Patrick is bringing in a load on such and such day. So he gave him a name. And with that name, thinking that maybe he'll get credit one day for it, right? Or, or, or they'll come to his aid. Well, good luck. So, but if I say all of a sudden, okay, Manuel, let's divide that load in half. 400 kilos is us. And then let's take, among three of the biggest guys then, divide the other 400 kilos. 150, 150, 100. Then what happens? Instead of being jealous and wanting to knock me off, what are they doing? They're rooting me on because I'm bringing in their stuff. Everybody's got their own routes. That's why there was no cartel. Every group had their own uh, pilots, their own bankers, their own buyers, their own distributors in the U.S. They had their own uh, assassins. So it was not like there was this one harmonious group, right? So with that said, Manuel, in this one specific load, we're supposed to deliver 30 kilos to this one guy. And when my when my guy that would, that would do the distribution calls, comes to find out, we had codes. So when I call you, you, I knew you had to talk to me in a certain way. But the idiot, the agent, or whoever he was, is like, well, how many? And, and, and who sent it? So my guy like, hey, I'm just looking to rent an apartment. Hung up. Back then, you know, there was no way to trace those brick phones. So uh, lo and behold, I have 30 kilos left. Now I'm leaving for Europe the next day. So I'm like, shit, let me see what Sal can do. So I called him and I said, hey, you want a break? He's like, yeah, yeah. I said, all right, I got 30 kilos and you have a month. Because I called the guy in Colombia and said, look, you almost got us busted. So here's the deal. I charged him 7000 for the transportation. Mm -hmm. So I said, what, the best I'm going to do with your 30, uh, 30 kilos is I'm going to take my 7000 out of your cocaine at wholesale, which he was paying 18 So I'm going to take, you know, three kilos to pay for your freight. And then the rest of them, I'm going to dump it in, in a dumpster. You come, I'll tell you where it is, go get it. So you go, oh, no, please, please don't do that. you ruin me. I said, so here's the best I'm going to do. I'll buy him at what you paid for in Colombia, 18. And I'll pay you when I come back. Well, it only cost me three. I was charging seven, but it only cost me three. So now I had $60,000 cocaine for $21,000. So I called Sal, and, uh, and he's like, I can't, we can't handle that. And his partner, Willie, I don't know if you saw the series. Everybody keeps calling him dumb. <laughs> but he's like, oh, I can do it. I can do it. And a month later, when I come back, they had the money. So they did. And they start, and every, every load, they start bringing in cocaine. So at the end of 1978, Sal comes to me and says, hey, there's this captain in the Bolivian Air Force that's working with the Bolivian government, and they want to deal with you directly. So I go meet with him, 
And he's like, I can give you cocaine at wholesale in, in Bolivia, which we're paying 18000 because at this time, Colombia is not producing any cocaine. All the cocaine is coming in paste. Colombia is crystallizing it, right? It's all coming in paste or already crystallized from Bolivia, Peru. He said, I can give it to you at 10000 and for each kilo you buy, I'll give you one on credit. So at this time, Colombia is not the producer. They're, you said it's coming, coming in from Bolivia and Peru. So this is what, 70, 70? 78, 77, 78, 79. So I don't know when Colombia started producing, probably in 1980, 81. Uh, so, which is how Pablo got started, right? Pablo would just go out there, he'd be sent by one of the, 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 the bosses, hey, go bring 40 kilos or 30 kilos. And by, that's how ancient that was. They would drive it, you know, across the borders into Colombia. <laughs> So, and he, he was, one thing he was, he was sharp, and he was a risk taker and a hustler. So it didn't take him long to get power and to was get money. Was he a tough guy? Was he a tough guy even pre him uh, going into uh, cocaine or? See, I never, I never dealt with him till after I got out of prison afterwards. So I never had any relationship. Uh, and all our conversations were by phone because this time I can't leave the United States when I got released. Mm -hmm. And, and he's of course can come to the United States. So, but. You know, all the stories that I hear from people that were real, real close to him and that know him, yeah, he was a, he was a tough kid. He was a street hustler. I mean, he grew up on the streets stealing uh, tombstones and reselling them, you know? And it's sad because his mother was a school teacher that everybody loved. But, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting because how can we not have drug cartels? In essence, the United States multinational created all the cartels. Why? Because I'll tell you one specific incident, and like that, multiply them all over Latin America. So we went to Colombia. Now, when we're going full blast, and uh, and and later on, and we said, okay, so here's the deal: you're growing bananas. Yeah. Uh, how much do you pay you an acre? Let's say ten dollars. And we don't have enough. U.S. Uh, you know, Uniply, United States Banana Corporation, all of, all of those companies they come and they buy, and when they don't need no more, they tell us to stick it. And we don't even have roads to take it to Medellin, the mm -hmm. city. Yeah. So we're barely living. We're dying. Uh, you know, our, 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 our lifespan is not very much. So here comes the big, bad drug dealers, right? And we say, hey, Patrick, $10. No, we're going to pay you 100 And we're going to build you roads because we don't give a damn about your bananas. <laughs> we'll build you roads so that you can take some of the bananas back to the city. And we'll build you hospitals and we'll build you schools. And you're going to grow cocaine. So what are they going to do? Who is the immoral person here? You know, and that's what and that's what happens in all Latin America. We're not going to end up any war on drugs. That's the biggest joke in the world. War on drugs. Cocaine is 70 percent of the overdose problem in, in the world. And it's all the money on the war on drugs. You want war on drugs? Go out to pharma. And they're 72 percent of all overdoses in America. So we don't want to stop it because it's a big thing. And I'm not saying this in a negative way to the many agents like the one you had in your show that are honest people that are really out there risking their lives mm -hmm. to try to make this a better world for everybody. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about at the big, big level. I'm talking about a, a those that pull all the strings and do all that they do. And, you know, and, and the corruption, that was huge, huge. Anyway, so with that said, uh, you know, they come in there and, and they start growing the banana. So, he, so I meet with the captain and he makes this offer. I go back to Manuel and, I, and he's like, no, we don't, I don't want you involved in any of that. I'm like, why not? And he's like, because those people, they're animals. Think about a Colombian telling those people, 
further down south. He said, look, my nephew went out there to make a deal, and after I paid a lot of money, they sent them to me cut in four pieces in a box. Wow. He said, they don't play games over there. And he says, and why do you want to go over there? I'm, you know how we're bringing in the cocaine? Mm. Miami International Airport, through customs. That's simple. 800 kilos every month, like clockwork. Who are you paying off? Customs agent, two of them. What are you paying every we're time? Paying him, we started paying him $2,000, and when the, I, I did the last payment in April 79, before I went off to, on my trip, I paid him $7,000, $5.5 million I paid him. These guys were genius. They were two brothers, and they lived in the crappiest little house in Miami, drove the crappiest car that you've ever seen, to the last payment that we ever made. No to one the ever knows. Half million. Yeah, I mean they made they made with us. I mean, think about it. Eight hundred. We're paying anywhere. Between, we started paying three, three thousand dollars a kilo, three million dollars a month for two years, and it went from three to six million. So they made, I don't know, $60, 70000000 million? Just the two brothers. In 77 and 78. What happened 79. to them? I don't know, because I went off to prison, and after that, Never heard of my them. guy, my, they disappeared. So w- I'm the only one that knew them, right? And, 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 and someone that was close to me, but when they went to try to make contact, we had a number, right? Because what would happen every third Thursday of the month, we would put an airplane, we would take <clears throat> this big diesel Caterpillar engine, right? Hollow them out, put a 55-gallon drum that would hold 115 kilos, and, and load that up with, with our grease, and then we would bring it to Miami. They would call me. I, I would call them on Wednesday. I would give them a code. And on Thursday morning, they knew, and when I gave them that code, they knew where I had left that Wednesday night a U-Haul. And that Thursday morning, they would give me another call, and I would pick up the U-Haul with the uh, empty hollowed-out engines that looked like they had been sent to Columbia mm. to be rebuilt, Caterpillar. And that's how we did it for ages. I didn't come to the Bahamas and all that crap. No, at that, people at that time when you're going back and forth, are you feared? Are you respected? Are you admired? How, how do other people look at you? Oh, tremendous admiration. Admiration. And tremendous respect. Not fear. No, because there was no need to fear anybody. I mean, they knew that I had this enormous uh, organization behind me, but... Well, why is there to fear? We're not no killing one's him. dying. No Nobody's one's getting dying. killed. Nobody's getting killed. Literally, no one's getting killed. When is people start dying? Think about it. People start dying with the cocaine cowboys with that uh, shooting at the liquor store in Miami in Dale Mall, 81, 82, when the Mario Boatlift came to the United States. Mm-hmm. And some of those guys, I mean, good guys came, but Fidel emptied out the scum of the earth. 125,000, yeah. I mean, think about it. This, every, every criminal organization in the world has been in a federal prison, right? Everyone. The only one ever in history to take over two United States penitentiary, Lewisburg and Atlanta, were the Cubans from the Marielle. Now, how? They were in lockdown since the first day they mm-hmm. entered the penitentiary. I know guards that would tell me that they would walk by those guys and they would take, chop a finger and throw it at them. I mean, and you know what's funny? They were highly literate. They could read and write because in Cuba, even if you're in prison since you're nine years old, you're going to learn how to read and write and, and do math. But they were like animals. And uh, they came and they took over. They started working. And that's when things started to really uh, change. Well, what's your opinion on Jimmy Carter at that time? Because it's, uh, there's a, if you have any, because it's a link to that. Yeah, you know what? I don't have any opinion about no, no dealings or anything. Look, we are dealing with the CIA, okay? I mean, 
even before our cocaine, there's another world that nobody stepped into, which is the Cubans that went to Cuba on the Bay of Pigs that were the big pot smugglers in Miami, you know? But nobody ever messed with that, right? Because again, there's no violence. It's, it's, it's a good old boy business, and uh, nobody's getting killed, nobody's cheating anybody. You know, you're doing everything on a handshake, and everybody's honorable, and that's what was sad. First time you went away, how did it happen? Hmm? First time you went away, how so did it happen? So what happened is, as I make that deal with the Bolivian, and I decided, okay, we're gonna do it. So <clears throat> I'm going to Colombia to show the airstrip to the pilots, and as I'm going, I made, so we showed him the airstrip, and I called uh, Sal, who was in Bolivia at that mm-hmm. time, and he told me, they screwed you. And I'm like, they screwed me? And he's like, yeah, all they have here is the cocaine you bought. I, I had sent a million, 300,000, I had bought 30, 130 kilos. So <clears throat> anyway, I got on the airplane, because I'm gonna go straighten it out. And I'm just 22 years old. I'm gonna go tell these generals that overthrow government that you can't screw me. That's how crazy you become, right? Uh, that's how power goes to your head. And you think you're invincible. That's why everybody gets caught. So uh, I go down there, and they apologize, and they look, we had a short, we had the problem, but after this load, when you send the plane the next time, we'll give it all to you in credit. Perfect. I had a meeting with Somos I had to get to because I had arranged to bring refrigerated containers full of cocaine with diplomatic seals on them. And I had to uh, make that meeting. Now, this is 1979. This is uh, March, April 79, the beginning, no, March. And there's no airplanes from Bolivia to Nicaragua like now. You know, maybe once every three weeks or two weeks, something like that. So I'm going to get on the airplane because, I mean, nothing's happened to us, right? I'm God. I mean, nothing. What can happen to me? Nothing's ever happened to me. So we get to Colombia. We land in Colombia. My Godfather has a heart attack when he sees me in the airplane. I mean, here's the guy that handles all operations in the United States inside the freaking airplane. You know, with, not only with drugs, but it could blow up, it could do anything. Anyway, I assure him that nothing can happen. I, we refuel, in the morning we head out to Nicaragua. Half, halfway, one alternator goes off. So when one alternator goes off, we have bladders inside the airplane, right, to give us the distance. Uh, I'm like, hey, keep going because what are we gonna do? Return to the jungles? I mean, what the heck? How are we gonna get a piece there? Literally, we know that the second, 15, 20 minutes later, the second alternator will blow. And now we had, we were over Panama and we had no way to get the fuel out. And at 3,000 feet, that airplane just went down. If you see the pictures of the airplanes like that. And when I, we jump off the air, first of all, we thought we were dead. No, we're alive. <laughs> we jump, I mean, cause we got 200 gallons of, gas, of diesel inside this airplane and we got cocaine, we got all this stuff. And uh, the head of the pilot said to me, Take the flare gun, blow it up. I'm like, are you out of your mind? That's seven million dollars in there. And he's like, it doesn't matter. Get rid of the evidence. I'm like, listen, in Latin America, I buy everybody. Well, I made the mistake of not telling the guy that when the military came, I could reach, I mean, I had a briefcase. I always kept $200,000 in a hidden compartment underneath those Samson, old Samsonite mm-hmm, tar shell. Yep. So <clears throat> I should have just said, hey, here's $20,000. Make sure nobody touches that airplane. But I give him my passport, and everyone has passports so they could stamp it. Thinking he would stamp it locally. Little did I know he had to call Panama. And when he did, and explain what happened, next morning, DEA were there, were arrested. Attorney General comes to see me. And before he opens his mouth, I said, look, I only have two questions. I don't want to give you some bullshit story or nothing like that. How much to buy the cocaine, how much to get out? And he's like, Noriega just sold the cocaine. $250,000 for you to get out. 
I'm like, here's a number, and we have contingency plan. Here's a number, call, give this number, this, just say this exactly this way, the next day you have the money here. Sure enough, he comes and tells us, okay, you're leaving tomorrow. They're gonna to take you down to uh, Panama City. We were in the border with Costa Rica. So my plan was originally, we're gonna offload this. I'm calling Costa Rica. I just paid the president a million dollars. It's easy to cross over to Costa Rica so I can get another airplane to take it to the U.S. So they, uh, they, they said they're gonna rough you up a little bit, make it look good for the DEA. So they take us and they have this big conference room. And literally four shares on the back, nothing else. And they bring this little kid Patrick, he could have been 100 pounds soaking wet, maybe 5'4", uh, handcuffed to his feet and his hands. They slammed him on the floor, and then they took a broomstick, and they inserted that thing up his anus. And then blood just splattered all over the place. And when that happened, the two pilots, who I had told, made the mistake to tell them, hey, relax, take it easy, I already bribed the attorney general. Not only do they tell the DA, hey, he is the biggest drug dealer in the world this time, he just bribed your attorney general. So the only guy that can get me out now is running for his life. They take us and they put us in a dungeon for 20 some odd days and they torture us day and night. I pissed blood for five years thereafter every time I went to a bathroom. And you know, it's funny, I tell people, the interesting thing about it is physical pain. And I tell this to parents too. Listen, don't beat your kids, kids all the time. The time you beat them, beat them one time and make it memorable, but pain goes away. And uh, and it does, but what starts playing on you is your mind. We're in a dungeon, literally condemned. They wrote a book about it called La Modelo, and uh, we're handcuffed day and night, no food, no water, no bed, a throw against the wall. So they were like cells like this, and they would just take a fire hose, and they would just uh, shoot water and clean all the, that throw. Well, you imagine all that excrement all over the way. Luckily, after the second, third day, we had none to eat, so we had none to poop. So we were in good shape. But uh, yeah, it's your mind. And I see this guy across from me, and we made up our mind that there's no way we're gonna talk. We're gonna die here, and that's just there is. There's just no way to live with the shame that you're a rat. And there's this guy across from me, been there about six months for a pot, and he was licking the bars. And I kept telling uh, my partner that was there, I'm like, you know what? We gotta do something, man, but I can't lose my mind in this freaking place. And, and, and it's getting to that point. We gotta make him kill us. And, and we draw the plan. We're gonna, we're gonna threaten Noriega. He's gonna come, he's gonna kill us because that's nothing over there. And, uh, and we're done. So I did. I told the last time they came, I said, before you come in here, because they would come in and just beat us till we passed out. I mean, they took electricity to our testicles. You jump that high, pass mm -hmm. out. And uh, I said, before you come in here, let me tell you this, tell Noriega to kill us. Because if he doesn't and we get out, I'm gonna get his wife, his kids, we're gonna rape him in front of him, and then we're gonna kill him all, cut him into pieces. Yeah. yeah, I never killed anybody in my life, yeah. but I'm sure that definitely was gonna do it. You know, the bastard comes in there laughing the next day. I mean, like, like it was a joke. Well, it was probably a joke to him, you know? But uh, he's like, hey, don't get mad at me. I didn't rat you out. And second of all, you paid the wrong guy. Well, that was the clue, clue that he wanted money. I said, well, how much? He said, 250. And I'm saying to myself, man, they only have one going rate in this country, 250. <laughs> I paid 250 for four. We're only two now, man. I mean, you know, give me a little discount. Same thing. We give them the same story, the same deal. The next day, he comes and he's like, two days later, he said, get ready. They're going to get you ready. And 
we're gonna, I'm going to take you to the airport. We're going to take you to the airport. They put us up in this room, and they took a fire hose to clean us out. We had blood all over. We looked like, like hell. And, and we're going. And we just had tickets. We had tickets to Costa Rica. And uh, we're sitting at the airport. They left. Took a left. All of a sudden, 20 Interpol agents come. Hmm. George Valdez, I said, I don't know him. I said, well, we do. They got us, threw us inside an airplane to Miami. Got to Miami, and I was charged with heading the largest drug conspiracy in the history of America in 1979, April something. I had just turned 23 years old. The government asked for a $7 million bail. Now, in 1979, a murderer, he murderer, gets 50000 I'm like, $7 million? They had the decency to reduce it to $2 million. I'm like, I don't have a traffic ticket. <laughs> I'm a college graduate. I have nothing in my record. Little did I know that my attorney was writing me out. And that's how they knew, and that's how they went after us. And one of those judges he was bribing, he got busted, and then he traded a for me. So I hired the best attorneys in the country. And I mean, and I had. I had the greatest chance to win the trial because there was no evidence against me. Noriega sold the cocaine. I'm arrested in Panama. There's no wiretap till this day. Till this day. There's never been a wiretap on me. There's never been a compromising picture with anybody on me. That's according to the United States government. Till this day. So what happens is I hired the best lawyers in the country. And our defense, I even hired a guy that, that was a state judge that became a federal judge whose brother-in-law was an appellate court judge. I hired Marty Weinberg out of Boston, million dollars, 100,000 to tell me whether he would take my trial or not. I hired Alan Dershowitz. I hired uh, Shelby Heisman. Hired them all. Anybody that was anybody would hire. A million dollars, 1979. And uh, our final argument was real simple. This was my attorney's final argument. Because they tried to indict me in the Southern District of Florida, no indictment. Went to a grand jury, Middle District, no indictment. Northern District, no indictment. Making Georgia, which I'd never been in my life. Making Georgia out of all the places. Never been in my life. The guy that was with me had a case pending from three years earlier when he faked his death. I mean, the guy shows up in the courtroom and uh, just says, oh, Mr. Rosenthal, welcome back from the dead. He said, Your Honor, I'm only the second Jew to come back from the dead. <laughs> the guy was a riot. The guy was unbelievable guy. I mean, big ties to the mob. Anyway, <clears throat> Harold Rosenthal, they take me to the Middle District of Georgia and said that I was partnered with a guy which I had only met him a month earlier. Mm. So our final argument is, my client is a drug dealer. My client is the biggest drug dealer in America. That was my final argument. But my client has a constitutional right of venue. It's a, and he, you cannot just take him and try him where he's never committed an offense. Try him in Miami or try him in Colombia. You know, like, you can try him in Colombia. Didn't matter. And I mean, we spent another half a million dollars on the appeal and uh, ended up losing. So I went to jail for five years. They gave me 15 years, which is the most they can give you on a conspiracy charge at that time. I went back to prison and... I had a blast in prison, man. You had a blast oh, in prison? Oh, yeah. I walked in there. They had a big old cake for me. Welcome home, boss. And I'm like, hey, dude, don't. Thank you for the cake, but don't welcome me home. This shit at home to me. Yeah, I mean, I knew a lot of the people there, and, you know, I bribed everybody. So, I, I mean, I had a girlfriend in there, a legitimate girlfriend, because, you know, prisoners do have a lot of girlfriends that are, they call them girlfriends, but they're actually boyfriends. No, I had a... Legitimate yeah. girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and I got out, and I didn't have to do anything. 
when I handed off the cartel to those guys, because when I saw they were taking me to Georgia. When you got out at that time, do you still have money? Oh, I was a millionaire. They couldn't find a dollar. Okay. Not one dollar. As a matter of fact, uh, Justice Berger, because I was given certiori on my bond hearing, which, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't hear bond. And in it, Justice Berger says, in this court's opinion, Mr. Valdez is a financial genius. He's got assets all over the world we can't find, and he can move and leave in a snap of a finger. I wasn't going to go anywhere because I wasn't going to spend the rest of my life in, on the run. Plus, I knew, convinced, all my million-dollar lawyers convinced me that I was going to win. There was no way I could lose. And uh, so I got out, and I had a big, uh, we were one of the largest cattle breeders in the country at that time. I had a big quarter horse operation, and uh, I didn't need to do that anymore. I had this gorgeous ranch, made me half a million dollars a year legitimate. I had millions of dollars still stashed away. And, uh, but I go see Sal and Willie. So when I handed the cartel to them, this was the, they were like, we'll give you half of all the profits. I said, no, 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 don't do that. Because a year into the me in jail, you're gonna say, you know what, George is in jail having a good time, and here we are risking our life, we ain't gonna give him shit. I said, so let's do this better. Here's the money to buy 10 kilos. Every load you bring in, through the operation I'm giving you, I'm giving you everything. Who's gonna give it to you? How to bring it in? Who to sell it to? The whole deal, bankers, everything. Buy me 10 kilos, sell them, and save me the profits. That's all. Oh, we've gotta do more than that. I said, no, don't do more, just do that. Well, when I went to see them, they said they, had, they didn't have no money, that they had quit. I'll get to my second trial, and here's what's interesting, that it doesn't really come out very clear in, uh, in Netflix, but, so when I, I work out, of, well, let me get to that and then I'll come back so that it'll, it'll make sequence sense. So, you know what? I looked at him, and looking back, it was the greatest favor anybody ever did me. According to people, they owe me like $20 million. They didn't give me a dollar. But I started my operation like that, again. No problem, and I started bringing in, and we're bringing in 800, 1,000. One, on my birthday, one month, I brought in three airplanes, one after the other. So you, you go in, you do five times, you come out, you're going back to the life. Going back to not the even, life. Not even flinching. And you know you're gonna get back into the life. But the different thing is, yeah, because it was almost like an ego thing. You know, you, got, you guys, like, this ain't right. You know, I shouldn't have gone to jail. This case, I was guilty, but not what you charged me of. And uh, even though recently I did a, a YouTube interview with the first undercover agent in my case, ever. You interviewed him? Yeah. And in it, you can hear it, he talks about it, he said, we never even knew there was a drug problem in America until we found out about you. But in it, he, he says, he said, you know, I never forget. You walked by me, shook my hand and said, congratulations. And uh, I said, yeah, because here's the deal. You didn't frame me. You're not my enemy, you're my adversary. Your job's to catch me, mine not to get caught. You did a better job. So good luck, see you again. And that was my whole mindset. And that's why I don't have any enemies in the government anywhere. So lo and behold, I go back to the same thing, but then this is when the world now has changed. This is when you gotta carry a gun. This is when you gotta go around with bodyguards with machine guns. This is when people are ripping people off. This is when Pablo now is, is in what, is the limelight. Is this 83, 84? This is 84. Okay. 84. 
And, uh, and then now my parents know. See, my mother was the best at tough love. And this is the tough love I tell parents. My mother is like, son, what you're doing doesn't please God. If you go back to yours, you're going to kill us. This is not what we risked our whole life for. And then she was like, uh, what do you want to eat tonight? You know, she drew the line quickly. They lived and died in the same house that they bought when I came from, they came from Cuba. I was mad at my dad. I said, dad, I got a horse living in million dollar mansions. And here you're all living in a $60,000 little house in Miami, little ranch house. Son, your lifestyle is not going to change ours. Mm. And, uh, you know, just tremendous, tremendous people. But my mother now constantly, son, what you're doing doesn't please God. Son, what you're doing doesn't. And I was like mad at her. I'm like, there's no God. What God? Where was God when, you know, when we came from Cuba and we were sleeping on the floor going hungry, three little kids every day? God is who I make him up to be. So, you know, but she never wavered. And then it just started eating me alive. And I just started to realize this ain't the world that I signed into. This ain't me. You know, I'm not becoming someone that I am. And I had a friend of mine, and at this time I had the largest quarter horse operation in the country, right? I went out and bought the best horse in the world uh, in Texas. Uh, I paid a million dollars for him, ended up being worth six and a half million dollars. And I was breeding them, 150 mares at 3,000 plus. I built a hospital in my farm. You know, I was making 900,000 plus selling my babies. Anyway, I had a friend, Patrick, that would come over, and he was one of the old-time pot smugglers. And he, uh, he had quit. And I would always ask him, hey, Lazaro, how'd you quit, man? Because he had moved to Ocala and left the business. And he's like, man, George, you know, best thing I can tell you is like being pregnant. Quitting and pregnant? He said, yeah, man, you're either pregnant or you're not. So you either quit or you don't. Mm. And if you do, you got to move out of Miami. Yeah. He says, why are you doing this? Look how much money you got. Why are you risking your life? And eventually, thing, one thing led to another, and I quit. I walked away in 1987, February of 87. I was making a million dollars a month. Now, since the day I came out of prison till the day I quit, I never even saw cocaine anymore. I had other people handle everything. And, uh, and I was making over a million dollars for Still, doing nothing. after 87. For doing nothing. Literally for saying, send a plane, don't send a plane. And, uh, Where were you living at that time? Were you in Miami? I was living in Miami, yeah. And I had my ranch in Clueston, which was 90 miles. Macon never inspired you to get a house there or Macon, George? <laughs> no. Okay. That judge, which later on, he became a fair guy, but the judge was like, first day of trial, he, he sends the jury away. Looks at me and says, young man, how dare tell you, you tell this court that you're innocent? You got a million dollars with the lawyers at your table. Any young man can't afford that? Then call the jurors. <laughs> I mean, the guy was brutal. Uh, Wilbur Owens. I'm not very good with old names, but I remember that one clearly. I'm sure. Yeah. So, so it's 87. You're making a million a month. All you're doing is sending the planes. You're living in Miami. Still living large, or are you more oh, low-key yeah, now? Yeah, living real, Still real Still partying large. hardcore. But I didn't party in Miami. See, I never did that. Very, very seldom. I would party in California. I never, you know, the old saying, you don't poop where you eat. Yeah. You know, you stay low-key. Like, for example... How they got me, how they found out about me uh, to do the Netflix. So the uh, producers were constantly wondering, like, there's a missing link. They've been doing this for 12 years. Here we got Sam Willie, they're high school dropouts. They're not very smart. They're selling grams and ounces at a disco. And in six months, they become kings of cocaine. What happened? Until... The prosecutor that, that you saw on, uh, on Netflix, he's like, 
oh, you have a missing link? Go find George Valdez. Mm. And they're like, who's George Valdez? We never heard of him. And he's like, exactly, neither had we, until his attorney turned on him. He ran this like a business. I was on my, I, when they seized my ranch, they took over 100 Brioning suits. I wore a suit, three different suits a day, every day. I was at my office at 6.30 in the morning. I left my office at 6 o'clock in the afternoon, and I ran that like a business. And I didn't have shady people at my office. We had systems, and, uh, and that's the whole thing. And when I realized that this is not just another business we're doing, you know, this is something now that's killing kids. And that's what really was getting to me because now crack was coming on, on the forefront, mm-hmm. you know. And, uh, and I'm like, so, they, so when they asked me, how come it was so easy for you to walk away when Pablo, Chapo, Sal, Willie, they had as much money as you or more, same amount of passports or more, more airplanes than you did, and they couldn't walk away and I did. I said, well, for me it was simple because I never considered myself a drug lord. To me, I was a businessman, and this was a product I was selling. And when that product was no longer attractive for me to sell, I walk away. They can't walk away, because that's all they are. You see ball players, you see athletes, when do they go down? Literally in shame. When they could have gone down, left the game at the top as hero. Nobody remembers the hero. They remember, hey, you know, Joe Montana, you, you left the game when you were sitting in the bench. Not when you were winning Super Bowl, because... All these people, Pat, they can't leave that world because that's their identity. See, you take Chapo. What the hell is he doing even an interview to Sean Penn? This guy can go to Lebanon or go anywhere in the world. The guy's doing a billion dollars a month. A billion dollars a month. Why? Or, I mean, a week. <laughs> Tons of airplane power. He had distribution in every country of the world. Every continent of the world. He could go hide and they'll never find him. But they can't because that's their identity. They have to be there. You know, I, I call it uh, the, uh, the anguish of victory and the thrill of defeat. You know, what they say that X amount of mm-hmm. most bank robbers get caught at the ro- robbery site within the first hour. Yeah. They have to go back. And that's what it was. Well, that wasn't for me. So for me, it was easy. I just go back to my ranch and I just breed horses. So what do you mean in 1990 when they took 60 million? What, what, what's, so that, what happened, what's that about? So I'm retired for four and a half years, yeah. just living the normal life. Breeding horses, I had a house uh, in Vail. I had a, a gorgeous condo in Vail. I had a house four miles beach in the ocean, I had jets, and I'm living this, grow, uh, racing my horses, I'm building orange groves. You know, I'm, I'm making over $2 million legitimate a year in my ranch, and uh, I'm at a horse show in 1990, and they come and arrest me, and I had no clue. I've been in gone front for of four everybody. years. At the middle of the horse show. And I'm like, I'm clueless. What are you arresting me for? He said, you'll know when you go in front of the judge. And uh, so I go in front of the judge, and he's like, you're wanted in, Macon, in uh, Mobile, Alabama. Another place I've never been to in my life. United States Attorney Jeff Sessions wants you. Wow. So the, the gift from God for me was that it was a time when there was tremendous emphasis by the government on U.S. Attorney's Office to, for, to have seizures. To just take, you know, when they, see, why they couldn't take nothing from us before? Because the government had to prove that I made it illegally. They couldn't. Until once more I decided, hey, we'll change that. Now we'll take it and let him prove that he made it legitimate. So they switched the, the proof, you know, and therefore they couldn't. So when I get to Mobile, Alabama, 
my attorney is meeting, meets me there, and he's like, you're gonna walk. There's, they got one pilot to say that when you were in Miami, you, were, you picked up this guy named Dickie Lynn. Dickie Lynn was a kid that was in prison with me in Eglin. And was, when I got out, we hooked up, and he was the guy in charge of all mm-hmm. my transportation. But we quit. He kept going, and I went my way. And tremendous guy, super stand-up guy. He gets indicted, 150 people. They all get convicted. He gets life. He doesn't rat nobody out. And there's one pilot says, hey, I picked up. I took Dickie Lynn to Miami. George Valdez picks him up. Dickie Lynn uh, leaves with George. Six, seven o'clock, he comes with somebody else with $3 million and says, hey, look what George gave me. Now, anyone knows that. That's not how you. But here's what's interesting. The night before I got to Mobile, Alabama, that pilot killed himself. While he was a government witness, he was smuggling cocaine on a DEA airplane and crashed in the fog in Alabama. You see those planes in American Made, mm-hmm. you know, where they come into the oil field? Mm-hmm. That was a lot of our planes. So my attorney says, you got no... You walk. And I'm like, three months earlier, so I, for four years, July 1st of 1990, it was my final divorce. And my ex-wife takes off with my daughter, which was the love of my life. And she's crying. When I walked away from the hotel, I hired a guy to teach me karate because I'd done karate for a lot of years when I was young. So I couldn't go out now. I didn't have tons of bodyguards. So, and... Uh, and the first day he says to me, I'm gonna teach you about the sword. And I'm so excited, man. You know, I love weapons. We're gonna get into uh, doing the uh, weapons. We're not gonna worry about just doing a punch and all that. He turns around with the Bible. Now, I'm a diehard atheist. I looked at him and said, dude, I'm paying you a lot of money to teach me karate. I don't believe in that book. I don't believe in what that book says. So tomorrow you leave that sword home and bring the real sword. He got up this close to me. First guy, many, many years. And, uh, and I'm like, he said, young man, what I got to give you? You got no money to pay. And I'm like, man, I don't have a gun or a bodyguard. This guy's seven-degree black belt. Is he going to start whooping Jesus into me and I'm going to pay for it? <laughs> oh, hell no. <laughs> I'm like, dude, don't get excited. No, don't get excited. This is what we'll do. When the steam room is heating up after the two hours of karate, waste your time. You know, tell me whatever you want. Read whatever. And he did. And, and people say, well, what did he say that made you change? I said, I don't remember anything. I was just getting over the two hours of butt whooping. Plus, I didn't believe any of it, so I didn't uh, pay attention to any of them. But it was this. I began to see a guy, Patrick, that lived in a very little world, right? He lived in a little thousand-square-foot house. He drove an old car. And what was most intriguing for me was when he told me that he was madly in love with his 45-year-old wife. And I'm like, oh, no. This guy's got to be on some Japanese drugs, man. Ain't no way. 45? I'm surrounded by supermodels. I hate them all. How the hell is this guy gonna love that old woman? You know, now I think she's a gorgeous woman. But that was my mindset. And it was intriguing, and I did everything I could to chase him away, you know? And uh, so what ends up happening, so well, this is over three and a half years. So the only thing that he would say to me, which was really, really upsetting, or I'm like, come on, Tim, why are you so happy, man? You got nothing to be happy about. He had a miserable car, you know, miserable house. And uh, we got to be good friends, really great guys. And he's like, uh, man, George, I have an intimate relationship with Jesus. And I'm like, oh, no. I mean, I'm surrounded by people, and I have no relationship with anyone. This guy, a relationship with a ghost? Is he crazy? And that was my whole mindset forever. 
And uh, so July 1st, July 1st, 1990, 11 o'clock in the morning, my wife is taking off with my baby, and, uh, and I'm devastated. My world just crumbled. And uh, I go into my room, I get on my knees, and I'm like, look, God, I don't believe you exist, number one. Number two, if you do, you're probably in Georgia, you're so bad, you st stay down there and I'll stay up here. But if you're the reason for his joy, give it to me or kill me because I can't buy it, and I can't buy anything. And, uh, and, and nothing happened. I just, you know, people say that when you have a conversion, there's bells in heaven. Mm -hmm. I didn't hear it. must be enough mm -hmm. for Cubans, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to find out what happened to the mm -hmm. Cuban bells. But uh, three months later, my world went from dark to complete darkness. I get arrested, and I remember walking into Jeff Sessions' office. And I told my attorney, he said, you can walk. I said, Alan, I'm done, man. I can't fight these people anymore. I'm miserable. And, and I joked with him. I said, look, and by the way, and this, I said it as a joke, complete joke. I said, I said by the way, here you are, a good Jew, tell me I'm going home. I give my life to another Jew. He didn't say nothing. <laughs> and he's like, man, you're crazy. You're a mess. I said, I just can't fight these people anymore. What do you want? He said, well, let's go. So we go in there, and they said, look, it's real simple. Lots of money, little time. Little money, lots of time. Now, what can they get me for? If they can't convict me, right, because there's no witness, then the only thing they can get me is for the violation of my parole that I'm voluntarily going to plead to in exchange for. So my deal is, so what do they do? They're like, we're going to charge you with three life sentences. Three. Say, yeah, you quit with Dickie Linden and continue criminal enterprise. You're as liable for the crime you committed as the crime he commits. And now the law's changed. And it's no more 15 years, a life sentence. So all they wanted was the money. So I said, do you know how much money I got? And they're like, uh, no, but we know who does. So they get out of the desk, they go open the door, and in came three agents, DEA, FBI, and IRS. And they knew to the penny. Get out of here. How much toilet paper I bought. Get out of here. They've been following me for four years. But wait a minute, they knew exactly how much you had? Exactly. Now, think about it. The first time I go to jail, I'm a drug dealer, right? So they can't find nothing. Shoot, I create a lot of uh, money laundering yeah. operation. But now I've been legitimate for four years. I've made everything legitimate. I'm living a legitimate life. What portion of the 60 million you have is legitimate? All of it. Every bit of it. Got it. I mean, properties, planes, uh, houses, horses, jewelry. They stole about a million dollars of jewelry that they didn't declare. I even filed a complaint on them, one agent, with customs. But, so, they won it all. Now, at that time, that amount of money in Mobile, Alabama, was a lot of money. In Miami, not as much. LA, not as much. But it was. And uh, so, our agreement, our plea with the government was, we voluntarily forfeited, then we want to plead to a 10-year sentence, the violation, the time I had left on parole, right? I was given 15 years, I served five, I had 10 years left. And I had already done four some odd years of that five, of that 10. So that's what they ended up giving me, the 10 years. And then in prison, I started, uh, 10 you know, and you're 60, they took all the 60? Everything. And this is how it dawned, this is when it really dawned on me. I go back to the cell, right? And I'm in, I'm in a daze. And I hear this guy say, Milky Way, Milky Way. And I looked at him and I said, man, what the hell is he screaming Milky Way about? 
He said, oh, you better buy them now. He said, they only give it to you once every two months. County jail, Mobile, Alabama. He said, the food here is bad. Mm -hmm. That's how we supplement our food. I said, how much? He said, a dollar. Man, Patrick, it's like a, just a building fell on me. I said, shit. An hour ago, I'm worth 60 million. I don't have a dollar to buy a freaking candy bar. What a mental shift you got to go through. Then my wife disappears with my kids. The love then, of your life, your daughter. For two years, I couldn't find them. Hmm. And then my dad, who is my best friend, my idol, is diagnosed with cancer and told he's got a year to live. And I don't know if I'm ever going to be released ever again. And I'm going to prison. And uh, for another five years. And it's all about mindset. Inmate will tell you, sleep 12 hours. You'll sleep half of your sentence away. I say, if I sleep 12 hours, I waste half of my life. I said, I might not get out of here, and I might, but whatever the case is, every day I'm going to be better. Then when I wake up, at the end of the day when I go to bed, I'm going to be better than when I woke up. And I began to read. And I began to read the Bible as a historical book. I still don't believe any of it. And then, and then I, I, I decided, well, I'm going to get another degree. So I got a bachelor's. I said, well, let me start doing my master's. I started doing my master's from Wheaton College in Illinois. In jail. In jail. Told myself Greek because I had no one to show me how to parse. So all I could do, memorize the book. So when I got out, I went. So I did five years, got out, went back to Wheaton College. And I was on full scholarship again and living off student loans. I had no money. Uh, I lived in, my dad helped me buy this little eight, uh, 700 square foot three bedroom house. And uh, because the rent, the rent taxes were 675 bucks a month, was less than the college dorm. And uh, $90, Living by $1. yourself, you're by yourself? Or? Living by myself. And, and my mindset now is, I'm gonna finish my master's and I'm going to do a PhD. And I'm gonna become the best professor in the world. And I'm gonna have just a bunch of pretty girls beg me for an A. What a life, you know? Well, not really, but. So when I finish my PhD, I'm one of five Hispanics in the country with a PhD in Spanish compared to 5,000 Anglos. I'm named a Hispanic doctoral student in America twice by the Pew Foundation. And all of a sudden I meet, and then there I meet the love of my life. Unfortunately, he's had to be from Colombia, but you know, where I thought I would never, ever in a million years, right, would meet anyone. But you know, I met my wife and, uh, and it was just uh, amazing. And you know, and the interesting thing was that I have been celibate now for seven years. And I'm like, you know, is this gonna work out? We've been married now for 24 years. Good for you, man. And been together for 20, 26. You said first two marriages three years, this is 24 First two marriages three years now. 24, next year, next July, we'll celebrate 25. And we have two amazing children, and I wake up every day of my life, you know, in love. And I tell people, it's just the mindset with which you look at the world. What do you do now? What business are you so in? So right now, I'm retired. How did you make your money last 24 years? So when I, so I finished my PhD, I'm gonna teach. And then my father dies. And my father, like I told you, was my hero. And all of a sudden, I'm in the shower, and I'm pounding the shower, and I'm like, man, he never gave me anything. And I'm dying missing him. And then it dawned on me, yeah, he did. He gave you his presence. Values. And then, oh yeah, and then I have four kids. I'm like, how are they gonna remember me? Someone that sends a check every month and has a good summer? We're moving. And we're gonna move to Georgia so I can be a full-time dad to my kids. Where in Georgia? In, in Peachtree City, Georgia. So there's okay. no university to teach. Didn't know what to do. So I started a little service master, a little franchise, clean toilets cleaning, taking water out of people's house, 
cleaning fire. And it grew and it grew and it grew. And when I built it into a multi, then oh, I had uh, my contact with governments. Uh, we were involved in the cleanup of the Pentagon. Then at 56, I have no debt, living a very lavish life. And I tell my wife, I said, look at our kids. Our kids, we both grew up poor. Our kids have been brought up with great values to kids, but they think that normal is living a multi-million dollar home, flying around the country in a jet again, uh, vacationing in a house in Mexico on a yacht. I said, we're moving, and I'm quitting the company. I said, because if a man can't define when enough is enough, only greed will drive you. And if greed drives you, I can tell you, you're never gonna be happy, and, and that's how it was. I know what it is to live making a million dollars a month. I know what it is not to have a dollar a month. It doesn't buy you happiness and joy. You know, happiness is when you get up every day of your life and you say, you know what? My thing that I use, phrase that I use every time I speak at the end, when the pages of history are written, will history ever remember your name? Mm. And I'm convinced that the only way history remembers our name is when we have an impact in another human being's life. So I quit. I, we moved to Mexico. I started doing Ironman. And then uh, my wife wanted our kids to go to high school in the U.S. So we stayed in Mexico five years. Taught him a culture. I took him to a place where they could see people that miss meals every day and still Mexico? love God, Casamel. Okay. And uh, we went for a year and stayed five. I would stay forever, to be honest with you. But she insisted we come back, and we came. And uh, all my kids are super successful now. You know, uh, my son, I have a son who at the age of 16 overdosed. And his mother called me and said, he's dead, he's dead. 16 years old, 15, as a matter of fact. Christmas Day. Had the rescue been two minutes later, he would have died. Today... This kid, some, it's a millionaire making many figures, a year living in Malta, 32 years old, uh, CFO of a tech company. And my a lawyer who, uh, daughter who's a lawyer in Washington for the uh, education department, another one master's. And, you know, I did the same thing my dad did. I invested in my kid's life and had a vision, a vision for their life. And now I spend the rest of my life uh, we created a foundation when we built our company. We gave 10% to God and uh, to our foundation to make a difference in people's lives. And we built churches inside prison. And my mission now is to send a million books to prison. We sent 65,000 books. And people ask me, why? Why that? I said, because you know, that's a whole population that the world has forgotten, that the world has just abandoned. They have nobody left. And if they can read a book that can tell them we are not defined by our past, there is hope. There is faith. We, we, there is a God that forgives. You can, you'll pay the consequences of our choices, but you can be different. You can change your life. Then the world will be a lot better. And, uh, you know, they say uh, 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 the question about how do you judge a great parent, uh, they say by their grandkids, your parents were great parents. Because Tremendous. Because your kids are doing what they're doing, lawyer, all that stuff. That just means the values your parents passed down to you, was passed down to the kids. Now your kids are going to pass it down to their kids. What a story. What a great yeah. story you got there. You know, and hopefully this story inspires people to not even want to go into that life. I've interviewed a lot of different people from your world, yeah. not specifically, you know, uh, uh, maybe Cuban, uh, uh, Colombian, uh, cocaine, although I have had some people like that as well. And sometimes kids look at it thinking about the lavish side, but the, the trend I see with you is, you had a way of running businesses. You had a way of driving, selling, tracking, whatever it is, accountability, building a team, recruiting that could work in illegal businesses, but could also work in 
legitimate businesses. And the moment you make that transition into legitimate, you won in both places. Yeah, use so the same it's, principle. It's transferable to any industry. To any industry, yeah. it's the same principle that you use. You know, you, how do you treat people? Integrity, truth matters. Well, I've really you know, enjoyed honesty. this. I've really enjoyed this. I appreciate you it's coming out. My pleasure. Really, really good having Thanks, you on Valley Timmy. This has been great. My pleasure. It's been great. So did you enjoy it from the Cocaine Cowboys, the whole Netflix documentary? Give it a thumbs up if you did. And if you enjoyed this interview, we got two other interviews for you. One of them is with uh, Ed Calderon from uh, Mexican Cartel when he was dealing with that. And the other one is with DA agent Steve Murphy and Javier Pena from the Netflix special, Narcos. Click over here. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.